Good morning. Ah, there you are. Good morning. There we go. We all take inventories in our lives, don't we? Sometimes uh, they might be because of a traumatic experience. Uh, maybe it's something going on in the world. How many remember where you were on 9-11 when it happened? Yes, me too. I remember being in our living room in California, and our kids were little, very little. And I remember when it happened, immediately you take this inventory of your own life. You think about your kids. You think about your family. You think about what is life about. You kind of inventory uh, maybe what's important. What isn't important? Maybe some of the things you were focused on the night before don't seem that significant anymore when things like that happen. Or maybe there's sickness in your life. Maybe, or someone you love got sick. And you evaluate. You take an inventory of your life. Maybe you didn't expect to, but when it happens, you think and look at your life and maybe your spouse or your kids and you take an evaluation or an inventory. Or maybe it's a milestone in your life. Maybe you turn 50 like Troy. And when Troy was approaching 50, I think he thought the world would end, but it didn't. He's okay. Um, but we had a party for him, and I wrote out 50 things I love about him. But in order to write that, I had to inventory our marriage and look at all the things I knew about him and then write out all the things I love about him, 50 things. So I inventoried because it was a milestone. And we look at things like that. Or maybe when you turned 30, remember when you turned 30 and you thought, oh my gosh, now I'm old. Does anybody remember that feeling? I do. But also there's also that feeling of kind of tired of life as is. How many of you guys feel that way right now? Like, yeah. And maybe you're in this place that you kind of say, I'm going to look at my life and I'm just going to take an inventory and I'm going to figure out what would I do differently. So maybe it's not a traumatic event, but you just don't really like where you're at. I saw a few hands kind of like this. Um, and I guess this morning what I'm going to challenge you to do is put a pause, pull the batteries out of the clock, if you can, stop for this next half an hour or so, and just take a look at your own life and inventory where you're at. I'm going to force it upon you. Um, it's not a traumatic event, hopefully, but um, this morning I want you to look at your own life. Um, in that video of Johnny Cash, as you know, he was inventorying his life. And if you know his story, which I'm sure a lot of you do, there's lots of great things about his life. He was the most influential American musician in the 20th century. He had multiple inductions to halls of fame, such as Country Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Gospel Hall of Fame, that was unheard of. He had big hits like I Walk the Line, I won't sing any of these, I promise. Uh, Ring of Fire, Man, Man in Black, and then of course, Folsom uh, Prison Blues. And he had all these things going for him, but he also fought addictions almost his whole life. Um, he was married and had kids with uh, Vivian, and then because of his life and where he took it, he uh, lost that marriage. There was a divorce and a separation and heartbreak, as many of you know that have experienced that in your life. And then June came along, and he also re-invited uh, Christ into his life. 
but it didn't mean that he didn't struggle. So then you watch this video, and you see him kind of taking an inventory of his life, don't you? I mean, when you hear the words to that song, he didn't actually write that song. That was actually a rewrite. Um, but it's full of regret. Did you sense that? And so he's looking back on his life, and it kind of flashes through all those things. And I'm sure I remember him younger as well. I'm not that young, so I do remember him. And the lyrics to the song go like this, some, a part of it. What have I become my sweetest friend? He's talking to June. Everyone I know goes away in the end, and you can have it all. My empire of dirt, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And if I could start again, isn't that how we kind of look when we look back? We think, oh, if I could just back up, if I could just do it different, a little bit different. So sometimes when we inventory, we feel those feelings. A million miles away, I would keep myself and I would find a way. And so you sense his regret, don't you? And the reason why I love that video for what we're talking about this morning, and when we talk about have you taken an inventory of your life lately, would you say you would say you have regret as you look back? You might be young. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager or you're going on 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. As you look back, there's things that we regret, isn't there? Maybe there's things you want to change. Maybe there's things you want to celebrate. Maybe there's things that you want to keep the same because you like the way you're headed. Well, this morning, I want to jolt you into that state of inventory because when Solomon was writing Ecclesiastes, as I read through Ecclesiastes, and I've listened to Troy and a number of other speakers try to tackle this book, and Troy said it a few times, that this is probably one of the hardest books to tackle, and then they hand it to me, and I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> and so when I look at Ecclesiastes, and when I listen to Troy talk about it, I think we have to look back, because I'm now at chapter 10 and 11, and I think we have to look back and see where was Solomon when he, as I would see Ecclesiastes, is kind of an inventory of his life. Troy said before that Ecclesiastes is the end of his life. He wrote these other books, and then he gets to Ecclesiastes, and he's saying, I've seen all these things, I've had all these blessings, and now what? So as we look back, we need to see where, <clears throat> excuse me, is Solomon at in his life when he wrote this book. And so we'll look at 1 Kings, because Solomon starts out asking God for wisdom. Remember that when Troy said that? So he asks for this wisdom, then God gives him all these blessings. Well, toward the end of his life in 1 Kings, where I was reading, because they say he wrote the book at the end, this is what, um, where Solomon was at. So in 1 Kings 11, it says, As Solomon grew old, he married a bunch of wives that were not from Israel. They were from all different countries and had all different gods that they worshipped. So it says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And as the heart of David his father had been, he followed these other gods. I'm not even going to try to pronounce them. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. So when I read that, I think, okay, so they planted that book right about there in his life. So he's had a great run as a king, and he's followed after God, but now he's in this state where he's not fully following after God. He's invited all these other gods into his life. 
And when I think about that, I think about the times in my own personal life, because I don't do it right all the time, believe me. Um, most of the time I struggle with my own spiritual walk, just like you guys. And when I'm in those places where I'm not studying, I'm not praying, and I'm trying to do it on my own, and I'm allowing all these other things into my life, I feel this way. I feel like in, in Solomon's life in this time, he's got this cloud over his eyes. Do you know what I mean? So he's clouded his vision of God. He's got these scales that have come over his eyes. And then he writes Ecclesiastes in this time. So it's not like he's fully devoted to God. And when I think about that and I make decisions in my own life, I think that's where I kind of go off, off the trail. Do you know what I mean? So if, if Solomon's in that state, now we jump into Ecclesiastes. So we're all the way to Ecclesiastes 10 and 11. How many of you guys have been reading? Any of you? <laughs> Did we lose you? Oh, good. So you've been reading, some of you. So we invited everybody to read, if, if you wanted to, along a chapter a week. And so now we're to 10 and 11, and I was given 10 and 11. And I feel like Ecclesiastes as a whole, because of where Solomon is in his life, it's a total inventory of what he's learned. He kind of looks at everything. Remember how Troy had said, it's kind of a, a weighing of what works and what doesn't. And he keeps coming to this place that what? Life is what? Meaningless, right? And so he gives like all these great things, and then at the end he kind of, he'll, he'll, he'll do this with his words, and then he dives again. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes. I'm not going to look at 10, because if I could sum up 10, he kind of says, and this is in Bobby's words, no perfect situation, nothing really matters. So I'm not even going to look at it, okay? If you want to read it, you can, but that's basically what it says. So I'm going to jump to chapter 11. I want to read through it, because I want you to see his words with the thought of where he was at and that this is just kind of an inventory for him. So listen to these words. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Oh, wait, yes, eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. These are super profound. Um, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. That's good. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the bodies formed in a mother's womb, you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, or whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. I kind of feel like he's doing this. Eh, eh. Don't you kind of get that sense with him? Then he says, light is sweet. It pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of youth. Follow the ways of your heart, Allie. Whatever you see... <laughs> Your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Hmm. <laughs> Don't you kind of read that and kind of go, whoa, this dude is really seeking for something. That's what I sense. It's kind of that feeling like, 
Solomon is at the end of his life. He's done all these things. He's accomplished things. He's built the biggest kingdom. He's acquired all the wealth. He's led huge armies. He has a thousand wives. Um, So why isn't he happy? Why isn't at the end of his life he's got all this hope and he can offer all these things to you and all this wisdom? I mean, he's the wisest man. And I feel like there's, there's a connection to where he was at in his life and in his relationship with God. And I can so relate to that. I feel like there's times when my kids want direction or they're going through something tough. And if in my own life I'm not walking with the Lord, I'm not reading his word, I'm not seeking after him, I'm not praying about it, I tend to be flustered with what I would encourage them with. My words probably sound a little bit like Solomon at the end. And it scares me. I think, okay, I need to change some things in my life. So Solomon is asking, I think, where is the hope? Where is the hope? So this past June, um, an admiral, a naval naval admiral, gave a commencement speech. And I think it has two million hits on YouTube. So probably many of you have seen it. Um, His name is uh, McRaven. And he was commander of the special operations who led the charge and eventually um, killed Osama bin Laden. Well, he was asked to go to the University of Texas, give the commencement speech, and he spoke on 10 things he learned in basic training um, to be a SEAL. And he shared these 10 things. The speech is awesome. You really need to pull it up because I won't do it justice. But I would love to read a little part of it. And while I read it, this is the picture I want you to have in your mind because he describes this a little bit. So if you can bear with me, I'm going to read you something that he spoke. This is word for word, so I want to read it so I get it right. So the ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It's six days of no sleep, constant physical, mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and it creates what's called the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. Well, that was a pretty good picture for that. It's on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the, for, from the instructors. So 15 hours, they're down there. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some infractions of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us that we could leave the mud if only five men would quit, just five, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. So can you imagine being up to your neck in mud? Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up, and it was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. I want to pause for a minute, because I actually think this picture for me is kind of where I see Solomon. Kind of like, what, what is the meaning of this life? Why are we here? You know, if you follow the Old Testament, the Old Testament does a lot of uh, balancing because God so longs to be in relationship with his people. He so longs for it that he says, listen, if, if, if you'll do this, we can be in relationship. 
So if you sacrifice this, it'll pay for this sin. And if you do this, it'll pay for that. And there's all this balancing act because God longs for that relationship. But it gets exhausting, I think. And so for Solomon, I just, this is such a perfect picture of where I see him in Ecclesiastes when I read it. Just kind of up to here in the mud. The chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but it was sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and then two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted. And somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away by giving people hope. So when I think about Solomon being up to his neck in mud, I feel like, well, <laughs> I totally relate to that, because when I was going to do this message, I, I was sitting there in the first service, and I remember Bobby singing that song, I Trust You, O Lord to carry me through. Isn't that a beautiful song? And so literally even this morning to hear him sing that song, I felt that feeling of, okay, I can do this. <laughs> you know, that hope that it's Christ in me. So when I think about Solomon, I think, man, he was listening for that voice. He was hoping there would be a voice that would cause him to hear the singing, that he, he would he would be released from that feeling that there was no meaning. Do you know what I mean? But that actually didn't come from hundreds of years later. Because hundreds of years later, Christ comes on the scene, doesn't he? And that is the hope. I mean, the Old Testament, if you read the Bible, the whole Old Testament is the story building up to Christ's coming. It establishes the need for a Savior. Solomon is planted right smack dab in the middle of that. And he does not get to see that the Savior comes. We, on the other hand, have that hope. We have that hope. If you don't, I so invite you to talk to someone this morning. If that's something that you hear me say and you think, I do not have that, I'd love to talk to you after. But those of us that live now in the New Testament era, because we continue the story, Christ has come in in this verse. I, I, I love this verse because it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. You may hear the song. You can hear the song. There's hope, even in the midst of what you're going through. To which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Isn't that awesome? So if you're feeling up to your neck right here and you feel like, oh my goodness, there's no way I can do this. I feel like when we come into the New Testament, it's like this glass of cold water when you're hot and thirsty. Where you drink it down, you almost feel, you know that feeling like you feel the cold go down? And it feels so good. I told Troy the other day when he was speaking, and he read something from Ecclesiastes. I don't remember what chapter he was in. And he jumped into the Gospels. And he read something, I think it was from Mark. And when he read it, I told him, I almost felt like the light was switched on. Like a, a, 
like a revelation of you went from the Old Testament where there isn't a Savior to the New Testament where Christ comes and he says, I am the Redeemer, I am the Savior. It's like the song in the night. So when you look at this line, I'm going to carry this from even last week. Troy talked about how the little red dot, can you see it at the end on these screens? The little red dot signifies your life here on earth. The white is all of eternity. So as you stop, if I could blow this picture up, and you look at the little red dot, and you put your finger right where you are on that dot. Maybe you're more toward the end, um, or maybe the middle. Um, some of you may be a little more to the beginning. And you look at that and you say, okay, I'm here, but am I sinking or am I soaring? As you evaluate, as I ask you to inventory your life, I want to know where are you at. When I think about Solomon, I think Solomon kept giving instruction about how to do things, but there wasn't ever the hope of a Savior in it. So we work really hard to do all the things we need to get done. I think about, even when I go home from work and I think, oh my goodness, I've got to do a million things. But in it, what's important? So is Christ in what I'm doing? In the sickness that we get? In the, um, um, the things that we face financially? Maybe in our marriages? You know, he doesn't promise that we'll be taken out of it, but he does promise that he'll be there. So I think we have to change who we put our hope in. So I have one last story for you as you take an inventory. Um, the person that I watch um, probably most closely in my life growing up was my mom. And uh, she wasn't perfect by any stretch. Um, she had a lot of challenges growing up and brought some of those awesome things into our family because, you know, you pass it down generation to generation. I'm not speaking anything you don't know. I'm sure you're identifying with me. Um, but my mom, you know, met Christ when she was, oh, I was probably, I think, five or six years old. And I do remember watching my mom, even in the midst of whatever we might be going through, sitting in our living room. Those, that's the picture that I most remember her by, is sitting in our living room and having her Bible open and reading. Not all the time. This is like in the morning, early. If I got up early, I went downstairs, I'd find her on the couch. She'd be reading. You could snuggle with her, and she smelled like coffee. And I loved it. I mean, that was just my favorite thing. If she turned and talked to you, it was like coffee breath. Morning coffee breath. <laughs> And uh, not all the time. She wasn't always there. But that's what I remember. And so when I think about, like, having that um, inventory and you take that inventory of your life and you think, okay, all the things that I do, I wonder what my kids will look back and see about me. You know what I mean? Like, will they see me uh, be flustered, flustered and have those scales over my eyes? Remember I talked about Solomon had other gods before him. So what things are in my life that is clouding me from seeing God in my life, from seeing that hope in my life? Do I live with that hope as, and claim it as a hope? Or do I struggle through it and they just see me flustered through things? I know, if I had to be honest, I think they see me struggle through things without God being the center of it. I know they would say that, but my, my hope is in Jesus. I have to remember that. I have to pull those scales away. 
So the story I'm going to read you is when, we, when my mom was at the end of, she, she passed away of ovarian cancer a few years ago. And when she did, we all decided as a family to go and be at her house for um, the last three weeks. I mean, we didn't know it was her last three weeks, but we knew we were, she was at the end. And we gathered together, and that was one of those, I don't really want to inventory my life, but you get into that place of, okay, what's important to me, you know? And so packed up all the kids. Our kids were, you know, a few years, a few years younger from now. And um, we just decided it would be best for us to all be together. And I think at the time, we weren't thinking, okay, this will impact our kids this way. You know, you don't inventory that then. Um, but man, there were sweet moments in that time, and I'm so thankful for it. And I know not everyone gets that chance, but I just think, oh my goodness, there are such sweet moments in that time with my mom at the end there. And I didn't realize how it impacted my kids until, um, like, Jordan wrote something in school, and we read it, and how it impacted her. And Jackie wrote something now in college, and and uh, it it shows me that what my mom did had an impact on my kids. And so I'm just going to read you a little portion of how that affected Jackie as she inventoried when she had to write this page. So it says, My grandma was born and raised with eight siblings and a mother and father to call her family. It was hectic and confusing time for her all through her childhood for reasons and dealings of faith, unhealthy relationships, and other hardships. It only seems like a gift from God that she came up and out of her past as the kind and godly woman that she was. The way she shared stories, expressed her feelings, or explained her faith was always put in words that knocked hard on my heart and gently eased my confusion. Her vocabulary stretched far beyond my own capabilities and above anything I've ever experienced before. To my surprise, as I grew up and not just listened, but really heard what my grandma was saying, it wasn't the words themselves that had power, though they always did seem to put me in a calm still whenever she spoke, but the place in which they came that empowered their meeting. One circumstance I can remember with clear vividness is from a moment in the midst of her battle through ovarian cancer. This was toward the end of her life when we were all together. She was sitting on her chair in the living room with all the family gathered around to pray, share, or simply be in each other's company, and she said so gently and with no hardship at all that it was for the happiness of her heart that she wants, to, she wants prayer versus the healing of any cancer. She just wanted us to pray for her. She just said, if I get healing, that's great, but you just pray for me. How absurd to hear someone not want the specifics of our prayer then and in that moment to be around healing. With more thought than after, there is no doubt that she did want healing and would probably have welcomed it with open arms, that she knew who our God was and what this life is about and said what we all needed to hear. She always knew what to say. I love that because to me when I read that, and of course I cried probably the first couple of times we read it, but to me that was so hopeful because I thought, oh my goodness, in the end of my mom's life, she had an impact on not only me but my own kids. And I didn't find out about it until just this past year, really how it's impacting them. And I'm sure it will continue to. And I love that. So then when I inventory my own life, I think, what will my kids write? <laughs> you know, what will my kids write? What will my grandkids write? What will your kids write? What would your spouses write? 
If I could invite Danny and Bobby to write a song and a video about your life, each one of you, and you could sing like Johnny Cash, um, what would your song say? Like when you think about what would your song be? What would your words be? Would they be regret? Would they be with hope? Would they be founded in what Christ did for you? What would your song be about? What would you write it about? So as we go to communion and we take inventory of our own lives and we look at it, this is a very simple request this morning, is I could tell you all these things you should be doing and could be doing, but I think if you don't have the hope of Christ in your life, you're missing it. It's not that he pulls you out of the mud. He didn't pull my mom out of the mud. He didn't yank her out and say, he could have. I really believe that, like Jackie said when she wrote that. I mean, I really think he could have, and we did feel that way. At the same time, he met her there. What a beautiful picture. I look at Solomon, and I look at my mom, and what a difference. At the end of their lives, I think, okay, my mom died with the hope, and that was okay because I know I'll see her in eternity again, and I hope. My life is written that way, but what will your story be? So as you go to communion, there's tables around the room. And the reason why we do communion is we go and we pick up the bread and we pick up the cup and we remember what Christ did for us. We remember the hope. We're, we're in the New Testament. It's the cold water. It's the glass of cold water. So you go there. What I want you to do is remember what Christ did for you. If you don't have the hope of Christ in your life, come and find me. I would love to talk to you more about it. Then I'd love for you to evaluate, what do I want to do differently? What scales are on my eyes that I need to pull away? Where is the cloud over my face? What gods am I following that I shouldn't follow so that I don't end up where Johnny Cash was at the end of his life? What are those things? So as you go to the table and you ponder that, I'd love for you to answer those questions. Let me pray for you. God, I do ask right now, I just invite you, your Holy Spirit, into our lives to convict our hearts, to bring us hope, to start the song that we hear, that we hear your still, small voice saying, there's hope. I am the hope of the world. Father, I pray for those that are walking to these tables that are carrying along with them a bunch of gods that they shouldn't be following. I pray you help them to let go of them, to be free of that, to live differently today to walk out of here differently as they inventory their life. Father, I pray that you meet us in our places where we're at, just right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen.